Well, church, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus. It will be, should be no surprise to you uh, now that uh, as we continue our study of this book, and I trust we'll draw a clo- to a close in the coming weeks, Titus chapter 3, as we consider, I think, one of the beautiful, most beautiful descriptions of uh, the salvation in which we have received. You'll find that on page 998 in the Pew Bible if you want to follow along there. And uh, as the choir makes their way out of the room, aren't you blessed by them, church? Don't you think it's just wonderful and powerful praise to the Lord that does great work in my own heart, and I trust yours, and so we're blessed to have such ministries, and so thankful to God for them. It's Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, hear now the word of God. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, we're thankful now that we can consider your word, be reminded of the great work that you have done for us in Christ, in particular, how you have saved us. We gather here today not only as children of God, but we gather as saved sinners, that you saved us, and it will do our heart great delight this morning, I trust, to be reminded from the condition from which we have been saved and how it is you went about it. And so be a great encourager to us, Father. Lift our heads, fill us with confidence in Jesus. And may you, even in the kindness of those here who may not know Jesus as their Lord, that today, even as Ezekiel, you promised through Ezekiel long ago, you might take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of, of faith heart of flesh, that they too might believe in Jesus. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. It was in the year 1848 when a man named Charles Ellett was considered to be out of his mind. This man had proposed to build a suspension bridge across the raging rapids just upstream of Niagara Falls where 37 million gallons of water plunge over the edge every minute. The river at this part is 825 feet across, and the torrent of water had cut so deep into the rock basin below, it had created a 200-foot vertical drop straight down on either side, creating what we now call the Niagara Gorge. No bridge supports could support a bridge in the midst of that raging current. So if it was to be bridged, it would have to be a suspension bridge. Now this is the mid-19th century, and suspension bridges did not last very long. In fact, a great suspension bridge over the Ohio River had just collapsed a few years earlier. And yet this man was determined that he would build one over the Niagara Gorge. Of course, the first problem that he faced was how to even uh, begin 
I mean, how do you cross that 825 feet of water that's raging by every second? Well, he had a brilliant idea. He proposed, or promised rather, to give $5 to the first person who can fly a kite from one side to the other. On the day of the competition, uh, the thousands had showed up, kites filled the air, and not one could cross the gorge. The next day, um, the competition continued, and a young boy was able to complete the feat, landing his kite in Canada as he stood in America. His, to his kite string then, as you can imagine, a light, cord, a light cord was tied and they pulled it back across the other side. And to that light cord, a rope was tied and they pulled it back the other way. And then to that rope, a heavier rope pulled back and eventually a steel cable had spanned the Niagara Gorge. With the cable securely fastened on both sides, Ellet, who was a half engineer, half showman, constructed an iron basket and attached it to the cable and with a series of pulleys He climbed inside that basket and pulled himself across, much to the delight of the thousands of spectators to watch the first man cross the Niagara Gorge. He wrote of that event saying, the wind was high and the weather cold, but the trip was very interesting to me, perched up as I was, 240 feet above the rapids, viewing from the very center of the river, the great Niagara Falls. Within weeks after that uh, little um, bucket crossed the uh, river there, he had completed a catwalk with wooden slats. He announced another great demonstration, gathering a huge crowd, and he leaped into a small horse-drawn carriage. He then drove the horses fearlessly onto this tiny bridge, which as to yet had no guardrails. And like a Roman charioteer, this man standing up in the carriage drove these horses across the bridge, which, according to spectators, swayed terribly as he did it. Others who were there saw women faint. The crowd was awestruck. And when he made it to the other side, the applause was so great that it could be heard above the roar of the Niagara Falls below. A few years later, the unimaginable had been completed from a kite string to a suspension bridge. The chasm was bridged. I mention all this to you this morning because I think it might serve us as a powerful metaphor. That, in fact, I think it would be good with this passage in front of us to consider a far deeper, far more vast chasm. The chasm between sinful humanity and a holy God. A seemingly unbridgeable chasm caused by a torrent of sin. Raising the question, who will bridge it? How will we cross it? Who will save those trapped on the other side? Well, to answer that question, all we have to do is look at the beginning of verse 5, don't we? He saved us. Those wonderful three words right there, which is in many ways the, the summation of Christianity. He saved us. We perhaps should be expecting this, but we've seen this kind of language already in Titus. In fact, if you look just at verse 4, the one verse earlier, we read about God our Savior. And then if you look in verse 6, in the next verse, we'll read about Jesus Christ, our Savior. Or if you look back in chapter 2 and verse 11, we saw that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. And then in verse 13, we again read about a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, what we see is that God is a saving God, and we find it here in verse 5, He saved us. 
Are you saved? Has he saved you? You see that little word word there, us, he saved us. Are you part of the us? As I mentioned, this is the the heart of Christianity, and there seems to be some confusion because people think if you're a Christian, well, maybe you're nice and you're a kind person, and certainly you're you're religious. After all, you're here on Sunday morning, right? And, And so you have some type of commitment. But what's all this about salvation? What do you mean, someone might ask, that I'm saved? I think there's no better place to turn than in here in Titus chapter 3. I think one of the most beautiful passages of describing the salvation in which God brought to us, we will, if God is willing, consider for two weeks. But today, I simply want to answer three questions that this uh, text seems to provide the answers for. First of all, who he saved, and second, why he saved, and then lastly, we'll see how he saved. We're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning on the first question, who he saves. So if you're keeping time this morning, you don't need to panic a little bit. Uh, We'll we'll settle down here, and then we'll move on quickly to the other questions. So question number one, who did God save? Who he saved? Well, you find that there in verse 3, don't you? For we ourselves, he says, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That, my friends, is a description of us. It's not very flattering, is it? It is, a, of course, a list of sin. We don't talk about sin these days anymore. We talk about problems. We're, we're willing to admit that we might make a mistake. We or we'll be able to say, of course, won't we, I'm not perfect, but many people in this world will, will do anything to, to keep themselves from having to say, I have sinned. I've sinned. We don't, that language is dropped away in our common vocabulary. We don't talk about that. Often we don't even talk about it in churches anymore, I'm afraid. I think Barnhouse is helpful for us, who wrote long ago, we stand before God like a little boy who swears with crying and tears that he has not been anywhere near the jam jar, and who, with an air of outraged innocence, pleads the justice of his position in total ignorance of the fact that a good spoonful of jam has fallen on his shirt just under his chin and is plainly visible to all but himself. What a description of humanity. We may plead our innocence, we may claim that we have not sinned, but I think it is, if we are honest, it's obvious to all that we have. You have, I have, we all have, and therefore, as we consider verse 3 together, I think it's helpful to place yourself in it, just as Charles Spurgeon recommended when preaching on this passage some time ago. He said, do not let me talk about these things this morning while you listen to me without feeling. I want you to be turning over the pages of your old life and joining with Paul and the rest of us in our sad confession of former pleasure in evil. This is what we were. See how Paul begins? For we, for we ourselves were once. He then goes on, to, depending on how you count, I'll count to the number six. He seems to list six types of sins. The first being that we were fools. We were fools. See that there, of course? For we ourselves were once foolish. Now, when the Bible says fools, it doesn't mean dumb. It's not saying that someone lacks intelligence. It is rather the idea that you live as if you know better than God. And this, I think, is, is pretty much at the root of all sin. 
Um, it, you know, God tells us reality is this way. This is what things are. In fact, when God created mankind, unlike the rest of creation, he came to man and said, okay, this is reality. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is what you're supposed to do. This is how you live in relationship with me. This is why I've made you and all the rest. He explains to him reality. This is the way things are. And the fool comes and says, no, I don't think that's the way things are. I think it's like this over here. We see this sin all the way back in the garden where God says there's this tree of knowledge of good and evil. You eat of it, you're going to die. And then along comes a second opinion from the talking snake, and he says, no, no, you're not going to die. You actually become like God, and everything will work out rather splendid. And so now you have a choice, don't you? You have two descriptions of reality. The wise man goes to God and says, okay, I believe you. It is the fool who says, no, I'm going to to reject what God says and believe that reality is this thing over here contrary to what Scripture clearly reveals. Now, you know my standard practice. I'm afraid, once again, I'm going to have to go with the Bible on this one. And I'm going to agree with what God says, even if we don't like it today, and even if we have other philosophies and theories explain all of the reality that seems to be paraded and We like to pray these things today, all of our philosophies and theories, and it seems like humanity very much likes to congratulate themselves on their intelligence, and God looks at them all, and he calls them fools. That's foolish. We are building houses and lives upon the sand, to use the language of Jesus. Brilliant, brilliant people spending their lives building sandcastles that one day will be washed away. We were fools. Secondly, you see, he says, we were disobedient. Disobedient. If fools live as if there is no God, then certainly we're not going to do what God says. Most people know that God has given us ten commandments, for instance, but we really don't care about those, even sometimes in the church. They don't even bother to learn them. I, I trust you're different. I trust you could, of course, tell us that the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath, or the seventh is to not commit adultery and so forth. God has these, these rules, these ethics, these moralities, these commands. And yet what we do, and what we once did, instead of living for, for what God has laid out for us, we live for what we want to do. This seems to be the mantra, especially of our day. I'm going to do what's good for me. The only sin, as we say often here, that we could commit today is not being true to yourself. And so there is no external code of morality. Rather, the only morality is my own desires. And if I'm not fulfilling my own desires, that's the sin. But the only thing that, that I should be giving myself to is pursuing what I want. And we don't care what God has to say. We don't care um, what God tells us to do. That's totally immaterial to us, and uh, we were once like this. We were disobedient. We see this, of course, from the very youngest of age, don't we? I mean, what parent gets up on Saturday morning and finds that their nine-year-old has cleaned the house? And then they're there, there she is with a Bible in her lap, and she's reading, Good morning, Father. I was just you know, journaling on my meditations this morning in the book of Zephaniah or whatever it might be. No, if you're anything like my house, you come downstairs and say, uh, who set the backyard on fire? What's going on here, right? Um, you know, we don't have to learn these things. No one taught us to lie. It just comes naturally to us. We don't send our kids to disrespect camp, right? These are things that, that, that come, that are in us. We are disobedience. It's just not kids, of course. It's all of us. I was uh, reading about a year ago in a book, and uh, in the book he He said there's this survey, there was a survey taken, and the survey, you won't like this by the way, but I'll tell you it anyways, the survey um, said, what what would you be willing to do for $10 million, $10 million, what would you do? 25% of the respondents 
said that they would be willing to abandon their family for the rest of their life for $10 million. Wife and children, spouse, husband and children. Just one, one, out, one out of four people, you go outside and you drive along the street and you get four cars around you, one out of the four, you give them $10 million, they would take off on their family for the rest of their days. 23% said they would prostitute themselves for a week. 7% said they would kill a stranger. Isn't that extraordinary? Seven out of 100 for $10 million. We'll go ahead and kill somebody. We ourselves were once disobedient. Number three, you see, we are led astray. Or maybe your translation says deceived. We gladly trade the truth for a lie. We've been doing this from the very beginning. It was anybody to tell me what's right and what's wrong, we will say, I will decide for myself. Number four, you see that we are slaves to various passions and pleasures. That's kind of strange, isn't it? We're enslaved. But enslaved to what, you know? We're enslaved to passion. We're enslaved to pleasure. I wonder if the world hears something like that. They think, well, what's so bad about that? Right? Being bound to pleasure? Sounds like a good thing. Right? I mean, people, I think, would be pretty happy to be constrained to their passions. And, of course, Christianity is not against pleasure, is it? It's certainly not against passion. It, in fact, commands it. But, it. but it is against it when it takes the place of the master. When, when these things begin to rule us and, and, and dominate us when, and God does not. There's this lie that is out there in the world. And I think we all at one time probably believed it or had the, will, the, I guess the, the ability to believe it. Is that, that if you reject God's law, you will find freedom. That God's law is oppressive, and in rejecting God's law, there it is liberty. And the scripture says it's actually the opposite, that we actually become enslaved. We become bound to things like um, material possessions and sex and success and the praise of people and, and money and all of the rest. That, that, that's what happens to us when we separate ourselves from the one who made us for him. There's a void in our life, as many Christians have said over the years. There's a vacuum in our soul. And that vacuum will be filled. It's like a drowning man. You know, if you drown to death, you don't die from holding your breath. You don't die from asphyxiation. You die from breathing in water. When you're not breathing in air, you feel this compulsion to bring in, breathe in something. Well, the same is true for our soul. The soul's not going to hold its breath. And if it's not breathing in the glory and the majesty and the grace and love of God, it's going to breathe in something else. Find something else, and whatever that is, it will become its master, and there will be enslavement found in that. This is perhaps illustrated well in the story of Reginald III, a 14th century duke in Belgium. This man uh, was extremely overweight. He was nicknamed Crassus, which I understand is Latin for fat. Well, after a violent argument with his younger brother Edward, Edward led a successful revolt against his older brother and captured Reginald. Edward then ordered a room to be built for him in Newquirk Castle with a slightly smaller door than normal. Edward then promised his brother that he could regain his property and title as soon as he left the room. Now, it wouldn't have been difficult for too many of us. Um, the, the door was near normal size. The door was never locked. All all Reginald had to do was lose some weight, and he could be free. And yet every day, Edward filled that room with platters of delicious food, meats and cheeses and sweet dishes, 
And rather than gaining his freedom, Reginald only gained weight. When Duke Edward was accused of cruelty, he responded, My brother is not my prisoner. He is his own prisoner. As far as I'm concerned, he is free to leave whenever he so will. That's a metaphor, I think, a helpful picture that we too are once prisoners of our own appetites, as Paul says, enslaved to pleasures and passions. Fifth, things don't get better as you see. We are malicious, we're malicious and envious. We are passing our days, he says, in malice and envy. See, once we're enslaved to things, anger takes over whatever threatens those things. So if you love the praise of men, if that's what your thing is, then you're envious of anyone else who receives it. Or, or if you're enslaved, if your idol's your family, for instance, you'll become bitter when your family disappoints you. Or, or you'll become malicious towards the other family that seems to have everything all put together. If you live for success, you're going to hate those who succeed more than you. That's your client. That's your office. That, that, that's your promotion. That should be your pulpit, right? And you're, and you're filled with, with hatred for them. But Paul says we were malicious. That is, we wish bad things happened to other people. And we were envious. That is, we wish that good things did not happen to other people. And we passed our days, he says, living like this. And as we do, our stroll, our soul begins to shrivel like Tolkien's beautiful and powerful picture in the Lord of the Rings. Remember, remember Gollum and his ring, right? I guess Gollum was this uh, uh, normal-looking uh, hobbit, right? A little man, and he found this ring, and it became everything to him. And over the years, he just became, to sh- become a shriveled form of himself, and he would turn on anything that got between him and what he called his precious. So I'll attack whatever gets in between me and my idol. You see, many people might be enslaved by passion, but just as many people seem to be enslaved by bitterness, I mean, they look at someone else, what they have, and their heart is full of envy. And they look, think of someone else, and that past slight, maybe a decade ago, returns, and their heart is filled with anger. Envious and malicious, like the Tennessee parents who complain that having an honor roll at the middle school embarrassed the kids who were excluded. And so on the advice of lawyers, the honor roll was eliminated. Of course, the issue is not embarrassment. The issue is envy. Or, or as, as I pointed out before, just you want to see this? Go, I don't know, um, at 7 a.m., try to head uh, east of here on Highway 7, and you will see this come out of our heart. We call it road rage. I and mean, where does that come from, road rage? Is that not extraordinary? I mean, I, People filled with rage because they have to go from 73 to 71 for 10 seconds, right? They tap on their brakes. How dare you, right? I mean, how dare you get in front of me? I mean, this just makes us red in the face and angry. I mean, how, how dare you take my spot? That's my spot. I mean, I'm going to have to now walk an extra 20 feet to the grocery store full of food. How dare you? I was going for that spot. And we're just, so it's just instantly, it's just right there, isn't it? We're filled with rage, it, filled with envy. It was out of, uh, out of envy, by the way, that the Jews sought to kill Jesus, the Bible tells us. It's out of malice that they led him up to Calvary to mock him and spit upon him and nailed him to a cross and murdered him. He, after all, took our spot, didn't he? He got in our way. Sixth, Paul says that we were once hateful. You see that there at the end of verse 3, don't you? That we were hated by others and hating one another. Now, few, few, few will admit this. I don't, I'm not sure I've met anyone who would. That, you know, uh, people will say... Uh, uh, I'm not a hateful person. I'm a loving person, right? That's what pretty much everyone says that. I'm, I'm loving at heart. I don't hate people. And yet, 
you know, we, we, will, we will say words or at least think thoughts like, you know, this person can drop dead for all I care or never want to see them again or you could go to, you know, you know where and, and all the rest. And we're hateful. In fact, there's a mutual hatred. We not only hated others, they hated us too. And I, I'm not exactly sure what hell's going to be like, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be filled with hate. I'm pretty sure everyone's going to hate everyone. And no one will love anyone. There won't be love there. It will just be a land of hatred as we turn completely in on ourselves. Of course, that's our nature. This is what we were, Paul says. It's not a nice list, is it? I mean, could you imagine going up to someone and saying, Listen, Lenny, uh, your problem is that you're, you're foolish. And you're disobedient. And you're selfish. And you're malicious. And by the way, everyone hates you. Right? We don't, we don't talk like this. We don't think these thoughts. I mean, we, we say, no, this, I don't know who he's talking about. He's not talking about me. Well, may I suggest to you that, I, that verse 3 is God's mirror for us. God tells us, perhaps even this morning, that maybe you do well to take a good long look here. This is who you are. This is a mirror that gives us our reflection. And I'll tell you, it does, does you no good to get mad at the mirror or debate with the mirror or reject the mirror. The mirror never lies. It just shows you reality. And I'm sure pretty much everyone in this room over the age of maybe 13 this morning spent some time in front of a mirror, right? And you saw, you saw something in the mirror, and you didn't argue with what you saw. You may have panicked, but you didn't argue, right? And, and you may have taken drastic steps to improve what was, what was staring you back in the face, but you, you, you admitted that, that's what it is. That's reality, right? We don't, we don't argue with the divine mirror held out with it. Once again, I'll tell you, I'm going with the Bible on this one. This, this is what we're like. Now, it's not saying we're like this all the time. Please don't understand that Paul would never say that we're not capable also at the same time of love and kindness and compassion and patience. And certainly people are like that as well. We are, after all, made in the image of God, and that remains in us, even if it has been damaged by our fall into sin. But what Paul is describing is our heart. He's describing our very core, that sin is not something that accidentally occurs in your life. It's not a product simply of the circumstances. You're simply acting according to the very nature. You, you, we, we, we're, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. This is our heart. This is who we are. Uh, some time ago, uh, before we had children, Allegra and I went camping down at uh, Bugs Island Lake there in Okanichi State Park, and we had a big black lab at the time, and this is the first, maybe two years old, his name was Shiloh, and, and we never took Shiloh near the water before, and, and we were there camping right on the, on the lakeside, and we, the three of us were taking a walk, and, and I found a stick, and, and you know, I like to throw things in the lake, I'm a man, I don't know why we do that, but we were throwing stones or sticks, is what we do, and, and uh, so I picked up a stick and threw it in the lake, and I'll tell you, off Shiloh went. Right, jumped right in that water. Never, never swam a day in his life. He's two years old. Jumped right in that water, swam out, and got the stick, and turned around, brought it right back to me. Dropped it at my feet. I thought this is this is incredible. This is, well, I don't want to know if it's a fluke. I threw it out there again, and the child just jumped back in that river, or, uh, that lake, and swam out there, and and brought it back to me. And I thought, you know, this would be interesting. I want to see how far he'll go. And and so I. I, I threw that stick as far as I possibly could, and, and I'll tell you, I thought Shiloh maybe go out halfway and turn around and come back. No, that dog just kept swimming and swimming, and, and he grabbed that stick, and he's come making his way back there, and just the nose was kind of bopping above the water, and eventually it would go down underneath, and then up Shiloh would come, and, and he came back, and he dropped that stick, uh, stick at my feet, wagging his tail. I mean, he's a very stupid dog, by the way, but uh, <laughs> um, he was as happy as could be, and, and, uh, and, and we, just did, we just did it for hours. Uh, I just wanted to, my arm gave out before Shiloh did. I was just swimming and swimming and swimming and retrieving and retrieving and retrieving. And why did he do this? Well, it's his nature. 
You use, after all, Labrador Retriever. That's what they do. Right? What, why, why do we sin? It's our nature. Titus 3.3 is a picture of who we are. It's true for first century Cretans. It's true for 21st century Virginians. It's true of all of us. And some of us look at this list, and I'll put myself in this group. And I, I go down each one, and I say, yeah, that is me. It's like Paul knew me. It's like he spent some time with me when he wrote this list. And I, I could, I, every single one, I identify foolish, certainly disobedient, malicious, hateful. I was one of the most hateful kids you could find. Yeah, this is me. But maybe you look at it and say, well, I don't, I don't see this in me so much. And it might just be that you, I was telling my kids this last night, it's, the reason that you might not relate to all this is that by God's grace, you've been raised in a Christian home, and that you might have come to re- receive God's grace at an early age, that you might have been saved as a younger child. But the only reason that you, you, you don't identify with this, the only reason you haven't committed these type of things, is because the grace of God got to you before you would have done so. So be assured, if, if you say, well, that's not me, well, it would have been if not for God's grace. So then what, what of course, do we do with this list? I mean, why, why, why are we even thinking about this, Christian? Well, I think we should, I think we do well to stare at it and, and realize, okay, if that's me, and Father, I am deeply sorry. And Father, I am so thankful for grace. Sometimes we want to skip over sin and get to grace. But you'll never appreciate grace until you understand the extent of your depravity. You understand the the depth of your problem. You, you, You only praise the surgeon when he tells you of the great skill in which he used and the great over overcoming great odds in order to save your life. It was Charles Spurgeon again who says. Too many think lightly of sin and therefore lightly of the Savior. But he who has stood before his God convicted and condemned with the rope about his neck is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. You see, Paul begins this chapter in verse 1. He says, remind them of this. You see that in verse 1. Remind them of all of this. Just in case anyone forgets, that is the grace of God that has reached out to you. And if it were not for the grace, you would be like this. And, and, and we, we cannot forget that apart from God's grace, we would be just like the world. Therefore, well, how should we respond, Christian? Should this not humble us? Should we not be humble to see what we're like apart from God's work in our lives? That, that pride should be the last thing in the Christian's heart. And what about those of you who are here that are not yet Christians? Well, you should learn that at the very least, God believes through his word that there is a chasm between you and him. And verse 3 is a description of your side of that chasm. And we haven't even considered the unapproachable holiness of God that makes up the other side. And we're just looking at the raging torrent of the sinfulness of your heart, at least the Bible's understanding of it. And this is a chasm that no man can cross. No matter how hard you try, no matter how sincere your efforts, you will not span this gorge. We require a bridge, not one of our own making. We need one to bridge the chasm for us. You say, well, who will do that? 
Well, look at the next word in verse 4. But, that's, good, that's a good word. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. You want to condense that. You just put, but God. Right? We're like this, but God is like this. We were foolish, disobedient, enslaved, malicious, envious, hated, and hating. But God, but God what? But God saved us. We are facing condemnation, we are facing judgment, we are facing death, and there's nothing that we can do about it. We were deceived and enslaved, and he saved us. See, the common story that is told in our world is that we're all searching for God, and God, for some reason or another, made it a little bit hard for us to find him. So you might have to climb the mountain, or you might have to empty yourself, or you might have to you know, pray a certain direction for five times a day and all the rest, and here's what you do in order to find your way back to God. The reality is that we are the ones who are hiding, and it is God who comes searching for us, like a shepherd searching for sheep. Why? Because he wants to save us. Which I think if we're thinking, we'd say, well, why? Why would, if we're like this, why would he want to save us? Well, we'll find that answer in verse four. Why he saved us. Why he saved. Look what he says. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Do you see the contrast there? We're disobedient, malicious, and hateful, but God is what? God is good and loving and kind. So the divine response to human sinfulness is not disgust, is not revulsion. It is, believe it or not, it is kindness. It is love. You see there, he says, but when his goodness appeared. Most translate that kindness, that that God is, is kind to us, God is compassionate to us. Jesus tells us as much, saying he is kind to the unthankful and evil, as John, uh, Luke 6, 35. So God's very nature is to be kind. God's very nature is to be patient with undeserving sinners. God, God is kind to us, the one who made all things, the one who holds everything in his hands, the one who is holy and wise and strong and just, is at the same time, what? He is kind. And because he is kind, you have been saved. He's kind. That's why he saved us. But it also goes on and says to, uh, and, and describes his loving kindness there in verse 4. Again, most translations just translate that love. It comes from the word which, where we get the English word philanthropy. which means love of humanity. That God is a philanthropist. He wants our good for us. Perhaps you heard that Bill Gates, uh, who I think is the richest man in the world, wants to give away half his wealth, which I think is about $30 billion, which means he's going to have to learn to survive on the remaining $30 million. Pray for Mr. Gates. It's admirable, isn't it? I mean, it's his money. He earned it. And I think whether he knows it or not, I don't know. He's reflecting God's character. This, this philanthropy. God is the ultimate philanthropist. He gives us far more than $30 billion, doesn't he? He gave us his son. God say, we're saved because God wants to bless his people. Is Tim Chester who writes, imagine God deciding whether to save us with a list of pros and cons. On the con side are the reason why God should condemn us. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, hated, and hating. And what's on the pro side? What is in the list of reasons why God should save us? Nothing. There is no reason why God should save us. But then God writes across the page, my kindness, 
my love. God saves sinners because he loves, because he is kind. This is, picture is captured in a story that John Phillips writes about when he was visiting a friend whose daughter was an alcoholic. I was visiting in his home one day, he writes, when she was delivered to his door. She had drunk almost an entire bottle of whiskey. Her temper was flaming and abusive. Her face was flushed, her manner belligerent, her actions violent. I looked at the picture of the young, unspoiled girl that still hung on the wall of this man's home, and I pitied the girl with all my heart for the terrible shipwreck she had made of her life and for her slavery to such a cruel and relentless tyrant. Yet I watched as her father took her gently by the arm, ignoring her abusive language. He steered her unsteady footsteps outside to his car. He carefully settled her in, his face drawn and his eyes filled with pain. He patiently strapped her into the seatbelt and then drove her home and put her to bed. Phillips concludes saying, I pitied her, but her father loved her. What a picture of how God treats us. I hope you see yourself in that story. And you're not the father, by the way. In fact, you you multiply this young woman's slavery and her wretchedness and her abusiveness by uh, maybe 10,000. And then you multiply the father's love, the unfailing, unconditional love of the father by probably about affinity. And then you'll know something of the love of God for you. So how then do we respond? If understanding our sinfulness should create, us, uh, create a humility in us, understanding the extent of the love of God for us by which we are saved should then uh, create people who are eager to love others as God has loved us. Love sinners unfailingly as God has shown us and given us. That's why we're saved. We've seen who we saved, but how did he do it? Well, Paul turns to this topic, how we are saved, there in verse 5. He says there, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So he tells us we're saved not by this. He begins with a negative, and then he says, but we are saved by this over here. So the negative, you see, we're saved not by works of righteousness. Now, it seems to me that verse 3 would have been clear that we're not contributing anything to our salvation. But evidently, Paul is not content just to leave it there in verse 3, but he brings it back up again, and he wants to be, there to be no confusion at all that you have contributed nothing to your salvation. It is not by works done by us in righteousness, not by being a good person, not by keeping the Ten Commandments, not by going to church, not by anything that you can do. So, so many people think that God is going to reward those people who are trying their best, you know, just kind of giving a, uh, their, their, their best effort, and therefore God will just recognize that, and he'll reward them for it. It's like when you put your kids to bed, and, and you, before they go to bed, you ask them to put some toys away, right? You know, we, we, we in our house, you know, say, depending on the condition of the house, we'll say, okay, before you get into bed, pick up 10 things, or pick up 50 things, or pick up 100 things, or whatever it might be, right? And you'll, you'll do this with your kids, won't you? Put your toys away, pick up the Legos off the stairs, pull the Cheerios out of your nose and all the rest, right? Take the tricycle off the piano, right? And let's go to bed. And, and so they go about and they pick up their, their, you know, their 20 things. And maybe if they're, they're, they're feeling uh, especially uh, kind, they'll, they'll do 22 or 23 and they'll let you know for sure. Look, I did 23 and, and all the rest. And you put it in the bed. And then once they're tucked in, 
Uh, well, is the house now clean? Well, <laughs> again, just to let you into the carn house for a moment, no is the answer. Right? It's not. Of course, they, they made a good effort, right? But they, they missed some stuff. And what you do as parents, you go back and take care of the stuff they missed. Well, that's how many people think of salvation, isn't it? Right? We do what we can. And even if it's not a great job, God appreciates the effort and the sincerity. He tucks us into bed, and once we're finished with it all, right, he takes care of the stuff we've missed. That seems to me the general consensus of how things work. And let me just be clear, the Bible disagrees completely with that consensus. It's not how we're saved. We are not saved by works done by us in righteousness. You know, people, perhaps you heard this, people say that Christianity is a crutch for weak people. And I think we just need to disagree completely. Christianity's not a crutch. Christianity's a stretcher. We can't even limp into heaven with God's help. We must be carried there, not by works done by us in righteousness. And all the other world's religions and philosophies and all the rest, they they teach, no, no, no. It is these acts of sacrifice, these acts of devotion that get us into heaven. For instance, take uh, Mark McGowan, a graduate student in London in 2003 who had accumulated a huge amount of school debt, and he was determined to raise the level of public pity for student debt. Now, as this 44-year-old man who writes a check every month uh, for his Duke education, which he's using so uh, effectively right now, um, I say amen, right? We need to raise public pity for sure. This man, uh, if you read his story, in an act of self-sacrifice, and great determination, Mark McGowan succeeded in pushing a peanut with his nose along the pavement all the way from the steps of his school to the front porch of the prime minister. He crawled on his hands and knees for 12 days. Now, can, can you picture this man, Mark McGowan, with his nose bandaged and bloody, his face to the ground, and giving that peanut one, one more push? By the way, the prime minister was not impressed. He didn't even come to the door. Or take, for example, the marathon monk, a Buddhist priest who just finished a seven-year running ritual in the remote Japanese of the mountains. The ritual begins with 100 marathons in 100 days. You then run 900 more marathons over the next seven years. On the fourth year, if you're still at it, you are finally given shoes. After you finish your seventh, hundredth marathon, you then spend seven and a half days without food, without water, and without sleep, sitting in an upright position and chanting mantras continually day and night for the entire 180 hours. Forty-six others have survived this Feet, those who begin it and fail to complete it, are duty-bound to take their own life, either by disembowelment or hanging. Well, as this man finished this seven years of running, he found there at the finish line people lining the path, kneeling down before him, begging him to touch their heads, that they might receive a special blessing. Those two stories may be vastly different, but they, I think, argue for the same principle that we think there, we, we might at least be willing to admit that there's a great debt that would be spiritual or financial, but that can be, be eliminated through great sacrifice. So if you push a peanut with your nose for seven miles or run for seven years, right, people, people might be impressed. They might forgive your student debt. They might line up for you to touch them on your head, 
But please rest assured, if you do any of this or anything like it, any types of works of righteousness, it's not going to reconcile you to God. Not by works of righteousness. You say, well, then how? How are we saved? Well, look what he says. But according to his own mercy. You're saved by mercy. It's not our plan. It's not our power. It's his mercy. I asked my kids last night, who needs mercy? Who needs mercy? You know who needs mercy? Guilty people. We we talked last night, bad people need mercy. You know heaven is for bad people. You understand that? Only bad people go to heaven. Only sinners go to heaven. Only sinners who have received God's mercy. That's why people hate the gospel. Because if you get to heaven by, by being good or, or, or kind, that's okay. But if you're entirely dependent upon the mercy of God, then we don't like that. After all, we're Americans, right? Well, we earn everything. We'll pay our own way. But you understand, unless you receive what you have not earned, you will never be saved. Unless you receive what you have not earned, you will never be saved. And so how do we respond to this truth? Well, I would say to you who are a Christian today, you know, we've seen that we should be humble and we see that we should be loving. I think we should have incredible confidence that you're not saved by your own work, right? You, you, if you are, how will you know if you've ever done enough, right? But I'm not. I'm not saved by what I've done. I'm saved entirely by God's mercy alone, and therefore I have complete confidence that one day I shall enter into his presence because of his mercy. He was saved by mercy. Well, how do we receive this mercy? Well, we just kind of skipped over it there, didn't we? In verse 4, there's a wonderful little word. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, and here it is, appeared. It appeared. His goodness appeared. His loving kindness appeared. So God's been loving and kind all along. It's who he is. But there was a moment in time in which it appeared. Well, how did it appear? Well, if you've been following along, this is the third time we've seen this word appear in the book of Titus. We saw it in verse 11 of chapter 2. The grace of God has appeared. We see it again in verse 13. The glory of God will appear. And now find it in verse 4 of chapter 3. The goodness of God appeared. All three appearance referencing Jesus. God did not send advice or instruction or counsel or some magical formula. He sent his son. It appeared in Jesus. Salvation, therefore, is not some vague spiritual experience. It is connected to the objective historical act of the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of the Son of God. As one pastor says, Jesus is the kindness and love of God made visible. Humanity had heard about the love of God over centuries in the promises of God and through the prophets. But at that first Christmas... God's kindness became more than a promise. It became physical. People could see it and touch it. God has always loved us. But in the incarnation and in the crucifixion and in the resurrection, his love and his kindness appeared to save us. So how do we respond? Well, response number four for us this morning is to believe and be saved. You'll see that in verse 8, that those who are saved believe in God, is when he finishes this sentence about salvation. Believe and be saved. Has he saved you? He saved us. You see those words in verse 5? Is that you? Are you saved? Has he brought you salvation? Is you and I and all of humanity 
At one time, we're under condemnation for our sin. There was a chasm between us and God, one that we can't bridge by our own goodness. And God came to save us. I pray that you would believe today. Maybe you're seated here today and you, God in his grace is allowing you to see your need for him, to see your need for his mercy. Or perhaps you would even pray in your own heart. You might even use these words and make them your own. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I'm separated from you. But I also see that I am, I am loved more than I ever hoped. And so I pray now that you would forgive me, that you would save me. I believe you died and rose again. You are my Lord. I turn from my sin and receive you as my Savior and my King. May you believe and be saved. For us, of us who have, we have a meal before us, don't we? A meal to celebrate the salvation of sinners. A meal to remind us that God is both kind and loving to us in Jesus. It's my hope that this meal would once again relight a fire in our heart. That we would want to be more like Jesus and more like our Lord as we see what he has done for us. So may God bless us in reminding us of these truths and even coming and communing with us through this meal. I would ask you to take a moment now as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, that you would repent of any known sin, that you might come to this supper meal with a clean conscience, being washed by the blood of Jesus. Will you pray, please? Father, your word is clear for us. If we would allow it, I think our own hearts would agree that we were once full of sin and rebellion. And yet, you, in response to that sin, met us with love and kindness in Jesus saving us not by our own works, but by your mercy. And so we're reminded this morning in this supper meal of mercy, blood-bought, broken body-bought mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're excited to remember. We're thankful that we can remember. We're thankful that, that all here who believe this gospel, as we've heard preached today, whether they're members of this church or not, can partake in this meal as we commune one and another with you. So help us, conform us even more into the image of Jesus through this work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.